and welcome to episode 27 of Sounding Board. I'm Rob Langham and today we're devoting an episode to the absolute phenomenon that is the movie and soundtrack for Black Panther, curated by Kendrick Lamar, the man who is still smarting from missing out on the number one spot in our 2017 album of the year poll. Mm. I'm happy to welcome back massive Kendrick fanboy David Cox. Hi Rob. And Josh Wells. Hello. Josh starred in our hip-hop and gangster rap retrospective recorded almost exactly a year ago which you can find by searching for episode 14 on Podbean or iTunes. It feels like only yesterday, Josh. It does feel like only yesterday. How time flies when you're having fun, I guess. Yeah. But first, one of the most mentioned men in the history of the pod, Martin Shkreli, has been in the news again. David, explain. Yeah, so I didn't want to overlook this because he has come up a few times. Martin Shkreli, who is uh, the pharmaceutical bro, who bought the Wu-Tangs once upon a time in Shaolin for $2 million dollars. Well, part of his conviction for security frauds is that he's going to have to give that up, along with the Picasso and a couple of other things. But obviously, the Wu-Tang album is the thing (laughs) I'm interested in. He faces up to 20 months in jail, and he's being sentenced tomorrow, so the 9th of March. And I hope they send him down for the maximum. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I wonder whether he'll be cropping up again in pods (laughs) to come. After this break, we're going to be plunging into the world of the Marvel Comics universe. So, David, you wanted to make a point about a cinematic universe or a Marvel Comics universe and how it might already exist within the world of hip-hop. Yeah, it relates to a classic article on The Quietus, which we should tweet out, about the Wu-Tang. And you mentioned that I'm a big fan. We talked about them before in the, on the hip-hop podcast a year ago mm. with regards Forever, which is released in 97. So the idea that the Marvel Cinematic Universe has a bunch of individual superheroes who occasionally come together for one film, such as uh, The Avengers or The Age of Ultron or this year's Infinity War, and how that relates to the Wu-Tang and RZA's five-year plan for the group, which was that they started with the release of Enter the Wu-Tang 36 Chambers in 1993. Then each of the members of the core members of the Wu-Tang then went off and released their RZA-produced solo albums with the help of their friends. And so instead of Iron Man in 2008 for Marvel, you have Tikal in 94 by Method Man. In 95, you have Return to the 36 Chambers by ODB, only built for Cuban links by Raekwon and Jizz's Liquid Swords. In 96, you have Ghostface Killer's Iron Man, and then they all come back together again for their Infinity War, which is Wu-Tang Forever, and then it launches another phase. And this is all masterminded by Riz, and I thought it was a really interesting idea. It's also worth saying that Ghostface, one of his many alter egos, is Tony Starks, a.k.a. Iron Man, and Method Man calls himself Johnny Blaze, a.k.a. Ghost Rider, out of um, Marvel Comics. And so the idea that on each solo album, different members of the Wu-Tang turn up, not so much ODB because I think it's quite difficult to get out of bed in the morning, but they all sort of occupy the same sonic space and formula. So when you listen to uh, Tickle or Return to 36 Chambers or Liquid Swords, you've got the same sort of slightly hilarious samples from badly dubbed or overdubbed martial arts films. And of course, because RZA is the producer, he's creating that sort of sonic environment and and that is basically where Black Panther comes in because Black Panther is a character who's introduced first in Captain America Civil War in 2015 this is his first solo album Mm. 
but he, at the very end, I don't know if he stayed to the very end of the film, or, but there, there is a reference to of the wider Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is what they typically do. They're trying to interweave each one as they come out, in the same way that Method Man might turn up on Liquid Swords and, and rap for a couple of songs. I mean, I must admit, the whole world of Marvel Comics for me is is a bit of a mystery. I mean, I watched Mark Kermode's comments on, on film yesterday after I watched it, and he admitted the same. Uh, and so we can sort of plunge into that a little bit more but that's really interesting I'd say Liquid Swords is actually I think I might have mentioned this on the hip hop pod is probably about my favourite hip hop album mm-hmm. I absolutely love it so, yeah. so that's, that's really interesting and I, I think we're going to see a lot of interconnectedness between different cultural forms throughout the rest of this pod so onto the, the film but particularly the soundtrack of the film Kendrick Lamar's behind it David do you want to sort of mention a little bit of background for the uninitiated about how it came about and what did he set out to achieve? Yeah, it's worth saying that there are two soundtrack albums. So one is curated by Kendrick Lamar with songs largely inspired by, in inverted commas, the film as opposed to appearing in the film. There are only three songs on the soundtrack album that appear actually in the film, one of which plays over the end credits. There is also another soundtrack album which was written by Ludwig Göransson, I think I'm saying that right, who is Scandinavian, is that right, Josh? Yeah, absolutely, he's a Swede, and interestingly uh, was the producer on Redbone by Childish Gambino, Mm -hmm. and has done a lot of stuff uh, with him and Donald Glover more generally, and has worked um, with the director of Black Panther previously on a soundtrack as well, so Mm -hmm. yeah, um, we can sort of come on to the global implications of having a Swede do a soundtrack for a predominantly African film but um, yeah, and apparently he's spent a lot of time world. in Senegal apparently yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Mal, yeah. yeah, yeah. he did yeah. go and do some kind of field work I suppose but it's it's still an interesting he's obviously a trusted hand for yeah. the director yeah. worth also saying the Charles Gambino okay, Donald Glover gave the Black Panther script a bit of a polish oh, really? so yeah so he's involved in the writing yeah. of the film I didn't know that. pretty cool mm. But yeah, so Kendrick has brought together a bunch of friends and acquaintances onto this soundtrack album, which has an interesting symbiotic relationship with the film's original soundtrack, in particular the repeated African drumming motifs throughout both. And what he's really aimed for, I think, is a sort of pan-Africanism. There are Zulu rappers here. There are... Yeah, there are definitely different artists representing Africa in different ways, which I think is a great... He's committed to that, and it's great. Uh, and it, it delivers some of the album's best results, I think. Yeah, I mean, certainly it's a great listen. Coming on to the tracks on the album, and I, I very much have enjoyed listening to it over the last few weeks. Mm. Josh, first of all, any particular favourites that you'd pick out and anything noteworthy? Yeah, sure. So there are some standout moments, I think, in all the tracks. It's quite uh, a bit like my comments about Dam to uh, David previously is that it's quite an eclectic blending of styles within hip-hop and some things that are maybe moving over towards R&B as well. So there's quite a lot of different stuff to get hold of. I particularly liked uh, the track I Am by Georgia Smith. Thought that had it was that's getting because it's a bit more melodic, it's getting towards an R and B sound, but it also reminded me of some of the slower outcast jams, things like Toilet Tisha or Stank Love that have a you know really heavy drum beat but still slow down and more traditional things like guitars on it and that sort of stuff. As a guitarist myself, sometimes that kind of pricks my ear. I'd like to say there about Georgia 
I mean, she recently played the I2 in Oxford, which is sort of very near where mm. ah, we're recording this podcast. No, I didn't, but I know that she's hotly tipped. She's actually from Warsaw. That's right, she's in <laughs> Yeah, so we were thinking about her future pod on Birmingham Music. She could start <laughs> yeah, alongside Duran Duran and Ned's Atomic Dustbin. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's worth saying that she won a Brit Award. Yes, yeah. the best yeah. newcomer for what it's worth. And I thought also, it was just a great track. She's yeah. also born in 1997. Right. Which is sort of... Yeah, I mean, I'd say... For me, the track, I really like that track mm. as well. I think that it's a little bit reminiscent of Nicolette, who was Tricky's collaborator back mm. in the day, and mm. that that's a, it's got a slight trip hop feel, so that's another mm-hmm. mine. I think we're going to plow, uh, yeah. if yeah. that's not a mixed metaphor, in, in, in the coming podcasts. So, yeah, really interesting. I'd pick that out as well. Yeah. Anything else, Josh? Um, yeah, I really liked Bloody Waters. I'm a big Anderson Pack fan, um, so anything with him on it, I really liked, and uh, I think Absol has a couple of great verses in there and he is a, can be a little bit out there sort of conceptually so I think you know a few people have commented that him being sort of limited to a song and having a particular focus he yeah. was just able to bring his lyrical inventiveness uh, to that but I thought he sounded great on that it's worth um, saying that friend of the podcast Brian Gearin is a massive fan of Anson Pack right yeah he's often sending me tracks from him mm. yeah well, it's I like that he because he's a really good drummer and grew up playing gospel drums and uh, so there's often a slightly live music feel I think to his production which because obviously he came to prominence also on a sort of soundtrack with Compton Mm -hmm. um, which went along with the uh, uh, NWA film straight out of Compton yeah so uh, yeah he's already got got a bit of form there (laughs) on soundtracks Um, and I really well also really liked uh, King's Dead. I thought that was my favourite beat on the album. It also has probably my low light of the album on it as well. We sh- we can maybe talk about future in the future. But uh, well, I but mean, mention, maybe mention that. it now. I mean, I think you were talking about you brought my attention to a really interesting review of the album on YouTube. Which you mm. want to tell us about that and what they said about that particular? Yeah, sure. So there's there's a YouTube hip hop review channel called Dead End Hip Hop, which I really recommend. It's for normal guys that just love music and they sit around and shoot the breeze talking about various hip-hop albums and they were discussing this and I agreed that when you listen to the track King's Dead um, at one point there's an auto-tuned singing voice that comes in that's an artist called Future and it starts sort of fairly normal auto-tuned and then goes to this really weird falsetto bit including the I'm what I'm sure will be an infamous lyric for all of time la di da da slob on my knob and it's just <laughs> it's, can it's I, just, can it's, I quote the lyrics? Yeah, you absolutely oh, oh, can. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's pass me some syrup, fuck me in the car, la di da di da, motherfuck the law, chitty chitty bang, murder everything. It, <laughs> poetry, <laughs> poetry emotion, and it, it's really weird because the rest of and actually J, it's not J Rock's best verse either on that track. There's loads of repetition in it and. Uh, but the beat is just undeniable and Kendrick's bit to it is really great and the beat switch up actually at the end Kendrick gets, I think it's one of his more intense moments on mm. the album I really like that so it's kind of a highlight and a low light but yeah whoever they were basically saying whoever signed off on that future bit what were they I think they'd had some syrup frankly that's, I think that's what's been going on there I mean I suppose it makes you remember it sometimes you get these little moments in songs don't you that they sort of it's the worst bit and then you kind of, kind of ends up being the bit you like it's, it's, a, it's an earworm yeah it really is I mean, <laughs> I didn't you were singing it before the podcast yeah absolutely, I absolutely. Yeah, yeah I didn't I didn't want to attempt the podcast I mean, to live on, I mean also on, on that track King's Dead James Blake appears who's, yeah. who's, who's 
certainly divides opinion on the podcast because when we reviewed his last album, I think it was a general thumbs down from the panel, albeit from the yeah. the the indie wing of our regular mm. contributors. And I, I think most of us felt it was pretty tedious and auto-tuned to death. And I, But I did one thing that was interesting. I, I'm not a fan, but one mm. thing that was interesting is the vaguely Calypso-style shades of steel drums thing, which for a pan-black culture album was the only hint I had of a kind of Caribbean influence on the album. It's very African or American, I yes. think. And I thought that was where, that was interesting, I think. Yeah, the, the, I don't know if you remember in the film, but Mbaku, who is the head of the Jabiri tribe, who live up in the mountains, yeah. he's from Trinidad and Tobago. Oh, is he? Oh, yeah. But but actually, in the album itself, it's very much about Africa. In, in fact, it's mostly about South Africa. Yeah, mm. yeah. Yes, which is great. I mean, that's something that I wanted to move on to. I mean, the tracks that really stood out for me, apart from some of the obvious ones which we'll talk about, mm. including the ones you've already mentioned... The African interest for me was really exciting, I have to say, and particularly the track by Zachary and Babes Wadumo. Babes Wadumo is, a, is from South Africa, one of the South African artists. Yeah. And apparently, this isn't something I had a great knowledge of before I was researching for the podcast, it, it's an example, the drumming in particular, of Gom, which is a kind of mm-hmm. South African yeah. house music. Mm. And it is a really upbeat Mm-hmm. sort of rhythm yeah. intense kind of drumming mm-hmm. you know I really enjoyed that she sings so. in Zulu as well doesn't she She's yes yeah so yeah, they also do on seasons as well yeah. they have a whole kind of Zulu verse in that and then also the track Ops which has got Yugen Blackrock who's, an, who's a Joe Berg yeah. rapper mm-hmm. apparently mm-hmm. joining Vince Staples for that one also very interesting to see that as part mm. of the mix so, mm. so yeah I really recommend Crabs in a Bucket by Vince Staples that's a jam Right. Zakari did a bunch of great work on Zaya Rashad's The Sons Terade album mm. including this one track called What's Wrong which is one of the best songs I've heard in the last few years mm. so what about you David? well I wanted to pick out more themes than songs because you've mentioned the best um, in terms of poli- the politics of the album and how it relates to the, the film in Black Panther, the opening track, Kendrick asks, what do you stand for? Are you an activist? And there's a strong kind of theme of activism through the film, including footage of the Rodney King beating um, and allusions to the LA riots in 92. There's also some politics in Yugen Blackrock's verse, which I think is the best on the album. I think she absolutely nails it. Uh, she talks about brown bodies that the blues want to shoot through. So talking about police brutality and what she's experienced in South Africa, which I think is a great, a great line. Also in Paramedic, so again featuring Sakari, talk about fucking with the gang. I had to hold a, a man, I had a man up with one fist in the air. I want to put my hands up. And of course, the fist in the air gesture with regards Black Panther as a political movement is timely. In fact, one of the only times it's actually explicitly made. It's never explicitly made in the film, funnily enough. I would like a Black Panther prequel where they go to the 68 Olympics and are there in the crowd. But I'm, sure, I'm sure I read somewhere though that the Black Panther character wasn't directly related to the Black Panther movement. They actually came about quite separately but ended up being... There's some debate. Sort of, okay. There's yeah. some debate. So it's interesting because Ryan Coogler, who directed the film, comes from Oakland, California, mm. which is where those scenes are filmed. Yeah. And the Black Panther movement comes from that, that part of the world too. The two things happened almost contemporaneously. There is some argument that the Black Panther movement is named after Black Panther, the comic book right. hero. Okay. So the, the two things came up at roughly the same time. So yeah, I want to say about, you know, put your hands up. According to Rap Genius, also relates to the shooting of Michael Brown 
uh, who used the phrase hands up, don't shoot just before he was killed by police. Of course, Ryan Coogler made Fruitvale Station, which mm. we might get into later, which is about very similar, if not the same thing. I'd also want to talk just briefly, briefly, about the uh, female artists on this yeah, album. Absolutely. Because the film, again, probably has more and better female characters than most films. Certainly more than any comic book film, including Wonder Woman. Uh, and so you have Scissor on the, All the Stars, which is pretty much the lead single and plays over the final credits. And is an amazing song. Although, Josh, you mentioned that it's controversial. Yeah, so... In the video uh, for All the Stars, there's a section midway through the video where there's a scene of several models standing in a room and they're all dressed in a sort of black background with gold patterns all over them and the whole room is in fact in the same style. Now this style is particularly known for an artist, Lena Iris Victor, who I believe is an African-American artist and the director and Kendrick and Scissor had asked her if we could use some of your artwork in the video she'd said no in the end decided she didn't want to be part of it and they went ahead and used it anyway and it, it is identical if you look up mm-hmm. sort of pictures if you google some pictures of the artwork it's exactly the same which has left a lot of people scratching their heads and going well if you're this film and this album is about promoting black excellence why are you stealing like it's not even like you didn't ask for permission you yeah. didn't get permission and then you went and used it anyway yeah. so that's been yeah a little bit controversial and I I suppose it's just part of the commer- yeah, it's the commercial aspect of an album like this however politically right on you want it to be or you know sort of woke or activist you want it to be it's still an album that's there to promote a film and <laughs> it's got those it's got those two things going on at the same time which are always I suppose going to come into conflict with each other at some point I mean there's been some I think Pitchfork's review was a little bit sniffy about the the scissor and Kendrick collaboration and then also mm. the final track which involves The weekend, yeah. saying that they were sort of singles by numbers but I, I disagree actually. Yeah, yeah, I, I, think both I, yeah. I think they're both really good I've been, I've, The weekend have sort of been a fan of for quite a while now mm. and I, I think yeah they, they, they suit well and, and it's great that you have that mix, mix of that and then also some level of experimentation I mean another track that's achieved a lot of praise is the the, the start off track that, that Kendrick yeah. does himself mm-hmm. which is quite powerful and, okay. it, and includes something which is interesting in that Kendrick both occupies both T'Challa, the Black Panther, and Killmonger throughout the album. So he switches mm. from antagonist to protagonist in certain tracks. So in Black Panther, he says, I am T'Challa at the end. In Paramedic, he says, I am Killmonger. At the end of the aforementioned King's Dead, he says, all hail King Killmonger, mm. which actually, when we get to the discussion of the film, perhaps, there's a real tension there between who's the actual hero of the film because the villain has a, makes a lot of good points. Mm. Um, and that's something thought, that's captured. I thought it was also interesting, because obviously they're the two singles that those two... Sorry, not, not the starting track, but um, the scissor track and the weekend track are the ones that are in the films, and they're obviously the singles that they used to push. So they, they, the videos were released pretty much straight away with the King's Dead track that we mentioned before. And one of the things I found really interesting about the Pray For Me thing is firstly... That, that obviously links directly to a track off Dam where Kendrick is asking people to pray for him and he does that quite a lot of is this album about Kendrick or is this album about the characters in the film I think there's quite a lot of that but also going back to the sort of pan-Africanism at the very end of that track they use the ululation thing sort of in in 
they use it rhythmically as a sort of a backing vocal, I guess, um, which I thought was really interesting because that can be both a kind of a victory celebration cry. People use it also at funerals, though, and it's a very multi-purpose, multifaceted expression that's particularly... I mean, it's also used a bit in Asia, but it's, it is sort of you know particularly known in Africa too. And I thought including that also on one of the lead singles was an interesting choice. Kind of subtle, it's still a very American, Western-sounding track, but kind of just blending that in there. So, I, again, when you sort of talk about it being a single by numbers, I think it's got a bit more to it. Yes, it's got a catchy melody. Yes, The weekend is everywhere and... Whilst I do like some of his songs, I am starting to get a little bit <laughs> sick of hearing him. But uh, that's not his fault. That's just uh, overexposure, I suppose. But yeah, I thought that was an interesting kind of part of that track. Yeah, I mean, we're going to go to a break in a bit. But David, any other more thoughts on the themes on the album particularly that stand out for you? Well, we've talked about the Pan-Africanism. So the Saudi rapping in Zulu, the Yugen Black Rock from Joburg, etc. We've talked about the politics and the activism. It's, it's worth saying that they even talk about modern day slavery mm. in the seasons track which reminds one of 13th I don't know if you've seen that documentary on Netflix the the tagline being from slave to criminal in one amendment so the idea that yeah there are more African American men in prison now than were involved in the original slave trade and how that's come about which the film makes no bones about mm. again we'll get to but those that is not a theme, it's front and centre, it's, it's, and spoiler alert, it is the villain's dying words. Yes, and I should have said that at the start, particularly in the second <laughs> section that we're about to go into, we're going to talk about the film a little bit more, and if you haven't seen it, be careful about how deep you plunge into the podcast. See you after this break. Hello, well, welcome back. Josh, just to continue our discussion of the Black Panther soundtrack, there's been some debate about Kendrick Lamar's involvement. I mean, obviously he appears on just about every song, some of them more prominently than others, but I know there was a debate on that same uh, yeah, YouTube it, clip that we were talking about earlier on, and what, what's your thoughts on that? Well, so I suppose the question would be, is this really a Kendrick Lamar album and he's very cleverly used someone else's money and the promotion of what is obviously going to be a monster hit film to really produce an album of his with a few nods to the film? Or is this, uh, you know, just another great bit of art that goes alongside another great bit of art? Because it's because, as we mentioned, there's two albums. There is a soundtrack that is the music in the film. And then this is a a sort of a soundtrack and inspired by it and only three of the uh, tracks are used in the film it's obviously not a direct soundtrack in the traditional sense is it so and Kendrick does this really interesting thing of only putting himself down as a featured artist on I think five Mm -hmm. of the tracks but yeah on does ad-libs does hooks little kind of background vocals and stuff on just about every track is credited as a writer on just about every track and so you you do have to sort of say, well, I would probably think of it more as a more towards on a spectrum, I guess, more towards a Kendrick album than I would a soundtrack. Although I think that because it has to be part of a, a film and part of a marketing campaign, I think that there are some more nods on here to musical styles that are more commercial and a bit less experimental than he would do. But his influences on those the sort of middle section of the album where it's less about the singles 
they are actually a bit more experimental and that's where I think you can see his hand on, on the tip. Yes, uh, David, any thoughts on this? Yeah. Well, just to say that it's an act of great generosity by Kendrick because he's just mm. broken a bunch of artists that, that I've never that heard of. Yeah, sure. And so Chris Manamphy in that podcast we mentioned in the, in the last one about music podcasts talks about an artist's imperial phase. So he talks about Elton John's imperial phase in the mm. 70s, George Michael in the 80s, etc. This is Kendrick's imperial phase. Mm. He can basically do no wrong. Mm. He's released according to how you count, three to, to four masterpieces. Dan was, uh, apart from our list aside, unequivocally the best album of the year last year. <laughs> and he's come out and he's said, rather than just take a bunch of my back catalogue and stick it on yep. there, because it would have shifted units, he mm-hmm. said, I'm going to write brand new songs, involve brand new collaborators from an eclectic mix, male, female, African, American, British, etc., and he's done something pretty amazing, actually, with it. Yeah. This isn't phoned in. He was only convinced once he saw a cut of the film. He was approached by Kugler. It's not like he, Kendrick Lamar was sitting around in his Compton home saying, how can I kind of get an album out on the back of Black Panther? It's mm. far from that. Mm. Um, and I think it's a genuine... There's a genuine dialogue between the soundtrack and the film and its themes. What do you think about the fact that there aren't really any legacy hip-hop artists... Featured, I would say these are all pretty much new generation or brand brand new um, artists on there. Well, from my point of view, it's great. It's exciting, yeah, I, really. I mean, I, I, I'm keen to hear new people, yeah. different people. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like if you turn that album up loud, it's full of unbelievable energy. Yeah, I and mean, it is a shame, I suppose, that you haven't got kind of old school black artists, African-American artists, who I presumably would want to give their right arm to be involved in this because they grew up reading those comics and aspiring mm. to that character. Mm. However, if you're going to make a choice, it might as well be utterly bleeding-edge contemporary artists. And do you think that that uh, ties in with the film of a, it's a futuristic style? To, you know, So it's got the African heritage, but the idea is this is technologically advanced. <laughs> it's forward-looking, I suppose, um, so maybe that's kind of part of it. But I just thought that was... An interesting thing that Kendrick's probably the most established artist on there. You know, there's no Dr. Dre, there's no Snoop Dogg, there's no. uh, No, it's extremely forward thinking, and and the the concept of Afrofuturism has been mentioned as well in Mm. connection to this, and Mm. sort of a reinvention really of a concept that I think was like mainly popular in the sort of 70s, Mm. you know. So. Um, I certainly, to me, I mean, when we come on for the film, it, it's an incredibly futuristic film. I mean, it really is. It doesn't really look back too much at all, although mm. it does nod to heritage. I mean, it just does a good job of doing both, really, I yeah. think. So, yeah, really good. I mean, on coming back to this point about the the fact that... I, I must admit, about half an hour into the film, we'll come on to the film in a minute, I was feeling a little bit robbed at the lack of representation of the Kendrick soundtrack... Sure. In, in the movie because I love it when mm. there are tracks I know and I know well when they crop up in the movie mm. it really makes it for me and I was really looking forward to that aspect and then I breathed a sigh of relief about sort of 40 minutes in when they're at this sleazy club in Busan in South Korea and the weekend sort of <laughs> chimes in appropriately <laughs> and by the end I wasn't bothered because I was enjoying the, 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 the Goranson soundtrack as well mm. so in a way, it's a little cottage industry, isn't it? You've got two soundtracks, you've got the film, there'll probably be other spin-offs. And, yeah. and you know, thank, please, please, not a sequel, though. So we'll come <laughs> on to that in a bit. But I think it's... Uh, did, did that bother you at all, that, that you know, that 
the film. I mean, you, yeah. this is the golden age of soundtracks, apparently. Yeah. Like, there have been a number of massive, massive soundtrack mm. albums, both kind of jukebox soundtracks, such as The Guardians of the Galaxy, or brand new ones like this, or the Compton one, which was sort of inspired by that mm. film, but not necessarily represented within it for a number of reasons. Mm. Josh, what do you think? I, I think it's sort of interesting when you compare it to other soundtracks so I'm thinking of things like Purple Rain by Prince or Saturday Night Fever in that those were pretty seminal for the artists and sort of being tied to the film in some ways those albums some of those songs you remember better than the films yeah. uh, certainly Purple Rain yeah. and um, so I I just think it, it yeah to me it feels a bit more like a Kendrick project that that is sort of inspired by what will be a cultural watershed moment. I think it's being sort of correctly identified in that. Not, and I think going back to that Afrofuturism thing, it seems to me that it's it's been really recognised because this album reflects the fact that the film is a forward-looking, positive view of blackness and what it can achieve. Um, and there are there are other films that sort of look at other issues, but having something that kind of does that. Yeah, I don't think it necessarily had to be tied to the film. I think it's more that they're operating within with a lot of the same aims rather than just trying to set a mood for a particular bit of cinematography, uh, which, I, you know, and I think if you're, you're willing to sort of just put that to one side and just go, okay, these, these are just in conversation with each other, not necessarily have to be touching points, then I think you can just go and enjoy them each on their own merits, perhaps. Whereas some other soundtracks, it's a bit like you do have to just tied into the film maybe. I don't think the soundtrack overshadows the film I don't absolutely no, you know, the film no. is probably the dominant and it, and it won't be the thing that breaks um, Kendrick either because he's already massive yeah. um, but for some of these artists I guess that will be yeah. the kind of their moment we'll return almost certainly on a future podcast to dedicate a whole episode to soundtracks because I think it's so interesting and we'll talk about some of our favourite ones and, mm. and like different approaches and I think that is interesting that whole idea of which is the most important thing in the eyes of the creators, the soundtrack of the film. But let's move on to the film. David, thoughts overall? So can I just give a quick description of the film? Yes, it might be a good little bit happy, background. Yeah. So, yeah. Josh, you haven't seen the film, have you? No, no, I haven't. So we'll try and keep this <laughs> at the highest possible level. Unfortunately, this is, I just couldn't, couldn't get the time after we decided to do this podcast to so, get out and see it. So, so we yeah. have a fictional country of Wakanda in kind of central Africa. Used its advanced technology derived, and bear with me, from an extraterrestrial mineral called vibranium to develop a sort of ideal African state and evade colonisation and its subsequent theft of its people, land, resources and culture. However, the film explores the cost of that deliberate isolationism. Similar, I don't know if you've seen Wonder Woman, but there's a kind of island of the Amazons Mm. who choose not to intervene and then are dragged into what becomes Mm. the First World War. Uh, in the character of Killmonger, who's the antagonist, who is disgusted by the Wakandan passivity during the black diaspora caused by slavery. So he wants to overthrow T'Challa, the Black Panther king of Wakanda, and use this vibranium to arm black rebels around the world, thereby sparking a global black revolution. This is a Disney film. It's absolutely unbelievable. And I think I wanted just to know... There's two things I want to know. I want to talk about Killmonger, because holy shit. But I also want to talk about the cast and where they come from. So there's Lupita Nyong'o, who you might know from 12 Years a Slave and other things. Probably the most beautiful person on the planet. 
although she's got a couple of rivals in the film itself. She plays Nakia, who's a sort of spy. She's Kenyan-Mexican. You've got Letitia Wright, who plays Shuri, who is um, T'Challa's sister, and is a sort of sort of Q character. The film is very James Bondish. Mm. There is a sort of gadget element to it. He kind of wanders around and picks up his gadgets, and all very funny. They mm. go to a casino, as you mentioned, with the weekend playing, and there's a mm. fantastic, very Kuglerish one-shot action scene going up and down stairs and around, and it mm. is brilliant. Um, she's Guyanan, stroke British. Denai Gurari, who plays a Koye, who's a sort of general of the King's Guard. She's Zimbabwean. Um, Daniel Kalua, who's Wakabi who's um, T'Challa's best friend and owner of some armoured rhinos. So he's the guy out of Get Out. Uh, yeah. he's, he's Ugandan. The Winston Duke Mbaku, previously mentioned, the leader of the Jabari, he's from Trinidad, Tobago, absolutely steals the show. There's quite a lot of buzz feeds about how, how thirsty people are for Mbaku. <laughs> Forrest Whitaker, who plays Zuri, the, ch- the chief priest, is Ghanaian and Nigerian, that's his descent. Mm. Let alone the various writers, costumers, producers, cinematographers from different parts of the African diaspora around the world. I thought, in terms of representation, I had never seen a film like this. And I think I told you guys that I saw this film in Brooklyn, in a predominantly African-American audience. The atmosphere was electric. Mm. So on one side of me were these kind of four late middle-aged African-American women... And on the other side of us was this kind of younger African-American girl. Mm. All five of them were constantly on the edge of their seats and they were talking to the screen. Mm. They were loving it. It was mm. like a sort of call and response thing in a, in a, in a church or something mm. where they were uh, saying, yes, preach it. You know, they were in mm. it every single moment. They were like, mm-hmm, that makes sense. And the girl on my right who, who was sitting forward, every time another black woman came onto screen she was like perfection I mean when she saw Angela Bassett I thought I'd need to help her because she's so overwhelmed by this beautiful woman another beautiful strong uh, uh, woman of agency in the film which the film is very good at I mean what, what did you think? Well, I mean, yeah, tremendous. I mean, I thought Letitia Wright in particular really stole the show for me. She was brilliant. The whole cast is brilliant. The costumes and the makeup are just out of this world. I mean, I don't know whether I've seen a better film Mm -hmm. from that point of view. A a, a nod to a couple of the white characters, actually. Andy Serkis plays a particularly nasty, significant baddie, which I thought was a brilliant bit of kind of nationalist Mm -hmm. casting, you know, Mm -hmm. which is very good. No reflection on South Africans these days, of course, but pretty nasty captain. And then Martin Freeman, of course, who you know was first seen on our scenes in Slough, you know, <laughs> arguing over photocopiers and things. But you know, he, he he does pretty well in an American role. I don't know why it has to be American. Well, he has to be American yeah. because he represents the CIA. Oh, I guess so. Yeah. yeah. And so thematically, Wakandan isolationism and imperial intervention are represented by Black Panther and then that CIA agent. Yeah. And remember, the one of the biggest laughs, certainly in the screening I saw, was when Martin Freeman wakes up and he's called Colonizer by Shuri. Yes. Mm. And that's an electrifying moment. Which you said made you sort of sink down into your seat in this <laughs> cinema in Brooklyn when oh you were watching. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, like, they go to the Museum of Great Britain, which is a proxy for the British Museum, and yeah. Killmonger looks at African masks which have been stolen by European colonizers yes. and yeah. goes, where did you steal that? Where did you steal that? Where did you steal that? I mean, not fucking around. Yeah. Mm. In terms of themes, though, one of the themes of the film, it seemed to me this radicalism versus progressivism you know which I suppose mm. 
if you're being a bit glib, could be summarised by the Martin Luther King approach versus the Malcolm X approach. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it comes down in favour of the progressivism, doesn't it? Rather than sort of black radicalism, violence, etc. It is Disney. And I think, yeah, of course, but I, <laughs> but I, I mean, it's daring that it even raises. Yes, absolutely, yeah. As, as a, but as a I mean, did any, anything sort of really strike you about that? Well, I think I think it's the central debate in the in the film. Mm. And who am I as a white British person to even attempt to get involved in this debate? However, it's interesting that there is a compromise, basically, between Killmonger and T'Challa at the end. Because T'Challa and all the Black Panthers have maintained Wakanda's isolationism through all of their generations. But at the end, he speaks to the UN and says, we are now a global player. Mm-hmm. And he goes to Oakland and he opens up um, these outreach centres and says, I'm going to start exerting influence into black neighbourhoods to help my brothers up. Mm-hmm. That is not... Killmonger's plan. Killmonger is to arm those mm. his his fellow black uh, members of the black diaspora to rise up against the, the white oppressors. That's much more extreme, and that's his father's plan during the '92 LA riots that you see at the beginning. Mm. But I, I I would say that it's a compromise. Mm. So T'Challa has not re- retained Wakanda's isolationism. But neither is he putting vibranium-powered guns into the hands of the ghetto mm. or the hood. Yeah. And I think that that's a pretty, as it goes, and you're right to point out, it's still Disney, but that's a pretty good compromise, I think. Yeah. And pretty decent. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. As someone from St Albans, you must be disappointed <laughs> that the metal wasn't called Verilania. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, so near, but so far. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, just on the film overall, I mean, uh, both you and... And me, David, we, we're both fans of another film that's out at the moment, Phantom Threat, mm-hmm. by Paul Thomas Anderson, which could not be more different no. in pace and, and how quiet it is in comparison. Very emotional, very kind of human drama. And, and that's more representative of the kind of cinema that I usually prefer. Now, the last Marvel, well, the last sort of superhero film I, I saw was probably michael keaton and the original batman i mean it's just i just it's not on my radar i don't think when i see a spider-man movie released or a movie released in any Mm. of the marvel franchise that i think i want to go and see that okay and and yeah (laughs) uh, i'm just not in that world so i think it says a lot that i was really bowled over by this i thought it was great my my only caveat and this is more about me than Mm. it is about the film is all of these movies have to have probably about 40 or 45 minutes of their running time devoted to what I would call running about mm-hmm. and people just sort of, yeah. you know, fighting, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, and like jumping down wells and, and all the rest of it. And I didn't particularly like the CGI rhinos, I have to say. Yeah. I thought that was a sure. bit over the top. <laughs> but I don't want that to take away at all from... I mean, I was really bowled over by the film, I have to say. And, and um, it's... yeah. And I mentioned earlier on, I, I really, really don't want there to be a sequel maybe something different that builds on it mm. with a different storyline different characters but if we're going to be in 10 years time at Black Panther 4 I'm thinking not great I really hope they, they resist to... the temptation to cash in because this could really stand I really do think it's a significant cultural moment yeah we should yeah. to cheapen it wouldn't it by just trying to eke it out I think that although I haven't seen it seeing all the trailers and the work that's going on you know the fact that it's got a even just got a soundtrack and got one of the biggest artists if not the biggest artist in the world to specially put together an album you know, just to see something operate um, on that kind of popular culture scale I think is really uh, yeah it's really interesting and I think as you say hopefully they'll 
they'll build um, on it in another way that they can put the same amount of love and attention into it. I think that's that's what really seems to come across. Again, it's not someone that's seen the film, someone that hasn't seen the film all the way through. Um, there seems to have been a lot of passion and dedication put into it, and I think with any art, that always comes across when someone really believes in what they're doing, and it, it just because it's, as you say, it's always going to have tropes. Uh, if it's a superhero film, that are fairly generic, but they do seem to have done a really good job of where there's space to not be generic, to you know move out of it and to do something fresh, and that's really great. So yeah, yeah. long may that continue. I'm sorry to break your hearts, guys, but they're back to Wakanda this summer with Infinity War. Uh, oh, of course, yeah. Although well, so it's, not, it's still not direct sequel, though, is it? Because I guess it's uh, they tying that in with because that's the whole Marvel universe, then, isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. the return. To the th- sorry, mm. that's thirty six chambers or Wu Tang Forever. That's when <laughs> everyone comes back together again before they then do their next round yeah, of solo yeah. albums. There will, of course, be Black Panther two. Yeah, yes, it's, it's already just, made a billion. It's just of course, done, it's done yeah. too well. We haven't mentioned totally, the yeah. box office, which has been phenomenal. Yes, yeah, I think it's already the eighth biggest grossing film in US cinema history. Really? Yeah. And that's counting because it was only released this, mm. you know, about and three weeks ago. I think that's also good because that shows that it's obviously made largely by and for perhaps an African American band of an audience, but it's obviously encouraging. Obviously, everyone's going to see it, which is you know really good, um, mm-hmm. and just displays that actually what most people are interested in are stories and good ones, well told, well put together. I know we've gone on too long, Rob, but I cannot I cannot do a podcast about Black Panther without talking about Killmonger's final words. Okay. In terms of the peak end rule, this is how we want to end the podcast. These words are phenomenal. So basically, he is dying but not dead, and Wakandan technology can basically bring you back to life. So another character, I'm trying to I mean, why am I worried about spoiling the spoil everything, but <laughs> one other character during the film gets shot in the spine and is going to die and, and they're saved. Mm. Um, and so it kind of raises the issue of like, if the Wakandans had been around and intervening in the world, could they have saved Martin Luther King? Could they have saved, uh, what is it, Oscar Davis, is it? Or the guy in Fruitvale Station? I'm not sure, but uh, great film. They, they, could have, they could have yeah. saved a lot of lives. Yeah. But anyway, so Killmonger then, they say, we can save him. And he goes, no, I don't want you to. He says, bury me in the ocean with my ancestors that jumped from the ships because they knew death was better than bondage. I think as final words go, that is some of the most extraordinary... Mm. That's, a, that's an incredible statement. Absolutely. We'll be back with episode 28 in April 2018. Well, in the meantime, you can interact with us on Twitter at soundingboard69. See you next time. <laughs>